Uh, so I've talked a little bit about some reliable correlations we do see in the uh, Genesis account. Uh, so I do think there is some evidence to support its overall reliability. When you add it all up together and there's much more, it's like, okay, this seems to fit really, really well. Well, it seems to fit really well until you hear the critics. And the documentary hypothesis does have a lot of critics that have argued against it. Welcome everybody, this is What Your Pastor Doing Today. Today I'm on with Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy, the very popular YouTube channel. Today we're gonna to be talking about Genesis, uh, authorship, Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, uh, who wrote it, when was it written, the documentary hypothesis, and uh, Michael's gonna give you his thoughts on it. Um, Michael, how are you doing today? Can you give us a little bit of, a little bit of your background on the topic and uh, what you're up to right nowadays? Yeah, so I'm, my, my name is Michael Jones, I run Inspiring Philosophy. Um, I've been studying this topic for a couple of years now, reading several, several books on it, and I'm planning to do a big 40-minute uh, documentary on the documentary hypothesis, probably in August or something. So can you give us your general view as far as uh, when you would date Genesis, who authored it, and uh, obviously we can go into specifics later, but just a general view. So generally I do date Genesis a little bit older. I remember reading uh, some work by David Carr in his book, The Formation of Hebrew Bible. He thinks there may have been some form of Genesis, not what we have now, but some form of it that dates back to about the time of Solomon or so. Uh, some other scholars like Richard Averbeck uh, or Joshua Berman do say it is much older. They tried to date it about back to the time of Moses, so end of the late Bronze Age moving into the Iron Age. Uh, so I generally fall in that area, although I'm not currently nailed down on when to date it per se, like more specifically. But I do think it could be quite old, although I also add that I do not think that it was its present form as we have it now, that it was updated, supplemented over time, and it probably didn't reach its final form until about Ezra, maybe a little earlier, but I tend to think that he may have been the final person to sort of maybe supplement it. Cool. And... Uh, specifically, um, you know, you have a lot of debate about exactly when each of the different, you know, sources are written and all that. Um, you have Genesis 1 to 11. A lot of people date that, you know, to the, you know, even after the exile. And then, you know, the rest of it is much earlier. Would you say you take a view like that or what would you say? No, I definitely have moved away from that view. So when we let, let's let's be clear what we mean by the documentary hypothesis. It, it's this view that. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, were originally four separate sources called J, E, P, and D. D stands for Deuteronomy. J stands for the Yahweh source. E stands for the Elohim source. And P stands for the priestly source. Somebody later on, a redactor, uh, combined J and E into J, E. Then they combined it with P, and then Deuteronomy was put on at the end as Moses' final speech. And some uh, things were also added to the end of that as well. That's generally the documentary hypothesis. There was originally two flood accounts, two accounts of the plagues in Egypt, two accounts of Joseph being sold into slavery, and a redactor combined these into one to make give us one flood account or one narrative of the plagues. Uh, that's generally a documentary hypothesis and what it actually means when they talk about it. Now, some people dissent from that. Like, for example, Michael Heiser would say that Genesis 1 to 11 is a corpus that comes from the time of the Babylonian exile. Uh, I tend to hold more to a supplementary hypothesis. I think that this material is quite old and was just supplemented and updated over time to match changes in languages until it got to the point through Israel's history where they didn't really, they, it, it, it had been handed down through so many generations, they decided to eventually just keep it as it is. Because, you know, eventually 
the text be was thought of more and more and more sacred. And so they didn't want to supplement it as much as time went on. That would be a generally what my view was or is. And as far as the, the first like 11 chapters of Genesis, um, where do you date that? So I'm not entirely sure right now. I'm leaning to maybe Solomon's time, although there is some possibility it could be older based on things I've been reading in books like Exploring the Composition of the Pentateuch or Paradigm Change in Pentateuchal Research, uh, as well as the book Inconsistencies in the Torah. It could be. I tend to say maybe it was like, it could have been Israel's, like when they, when they established themselves as a monarchy, they recorded something to be their history. Uh, although there, there are, it could, it could be older as some would want to argue. I've seen some scholars try to push it back a little bit further in those books I mentioned. So, but I'm not really sure. I'm not really nailed down to a specific date. I tend to focus more on if it's reliable or not. So even if it was written during the Babylonian exile, I don't care because I still think we can argue it's a reliable account based on internal evidence that what of what we've been giving. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so do you see any possibility of like, uh, oh, just, so just to be clear, when you say older, you mean like, uh, you know, older, say, say something like the Babylonian, Babylonian exile, what, 500 BC, older than that is, you know, 1200 BC kind of thing or and then earlier is uh opposite direction right just to be clear okay yeah. i mean i tend to think that it had to have been written before the babylonian exile even richard elliott freeman who's an advocate of the documentary hypothesis thinks that he thinks j and e were written first and combined after the assyrians took over the northern kingdom then he dates p to just slightly after that and then d to the time of josiah so even now i would say that's probably the uh, latest it would it could be but it could very well have also been earlier based on some of the arguments i've seen so you don't um so would you say that you don't find you know michael heiser he'd say that uh you know he takes genesis 1 to 11 to be you know either right before or right in the babylonian exile and he bases that off of uh you know, all the different comparisons mm -hmm. and the different, yeah. you know, <laughs> genres talking about like wording in Genesis 1, 1 to 11 compared to Enuma Elish. Uh, Gilgamesh is very similar to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 5 is simil similar to the Sumerian King's List. The Sons of God yeah. are similar to Apkalu, so on. Yeah, I think there are problems with that. The only one I, I am slightly le I'm okay with is saying that maybe that was uh, Genesis 1 could have been cultic competition with things like the Enuma Elish. Uh, but then it's very subtle and there's not a lot in there. John Walton has written a lot about this and says that it, if it is, it's very, very subtle. There's, it's no, there's no direct references to it. In terms of like Gilgamesh and the Garden of Eden, I did a video on this back in October. There's no evidence they had any familiarity with the Gilgamesh epic when they are writing the Eden narrative. Uh, the, the little things here and there just do not line up. Uh, like, for example, they want to say things like, um, you know, well, the serpent, you know, stole the plant from Gilgamesh in the Gilgamesh epic, preventing him from getting immortality, just like the Eden narrative. Well, not really. First of all, Jeffrey Tige notes it could very well be like some sort of like lizard. It may not even be a serpent in the Gilgamesh epic. But let's just say it is for sake of argument. The serpent doesn't steal a plant that gives him immortality. He steals a plant that he found at the bottom of the ocean that would have rejuvenated his body. And when he stops to bathe on his way back to the city of Uruk, the serpent steals the plant. 
in the Eden narrative, it's a serpent that tempts, it speaks more to the wife uh, uh, and tempts them to eat of this tree. So it's not a plant at the bottom of the ocean. It's a tree in the garden uh, to, and then get wisdom from that. Then as a punishment, they're caught off from immortality, AKA the tree of life. If anything, there are blind motifs. I would say there is a shared cultural heritage. They're drawing from the same cultural river. So they're interested in things like immortality. They're interested in things like wisdom, the nature of the divine, serpents, or associated with the divine in a lot of ways. They're drawing from that same cultural background, but they're not copying each other. It's like this. You will never see, uh, you'll never see a movie where an eagle is the bad guy. Why? Because we're called, drawing from the cultural river of America. Eagles are always patriotic and good. They're always going to be the good guy. But we'll see serpents as the bad guy because we're, we're coming, we come from a Christian heritage, so serpents are associated with evil because of our Christian heritage. So serpents are the bad guy. When they wrote the book, Aladdin, or when they had the movie Aladdin, they were not directly taking things from Genesis because there's a Jafar, he turns into a big snake at the end. Uh, and they're not really drawing from Genesis. They're drawing from the cultural river that Genesis helped to inspire. It's sort of like that. That's what sort of happened with the Eden narrative. When it comes to the kingless, Richard Hess has gone through this and notes there's just too many differences between the kingless and Genesis 5. These are not direct parallels. They are, they're focusing on different things. The numbers are not even the same. The uh, point of the genealogies is entirely different. The uh, table of nations in Genesis 10 has no cultural parallel. It's unique to the Hebrew Bible. I'm not convinced Genesis 6 is about about Apkalu or watchers coming to mate with human women. I, I think that's more about polygamous rulers and priests uh, doing things they should not have done. Um, I also did a video on the flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and I do know there is some similarities here. This is probably one of the best connections, but there's no evidence of literary borrowing. It's more likely that uh, they're drawing from the same cultural traditions, same oral traditions, and these are the flood accounts that have hand come down. So I would say they share a common source, but I don't think they were aware of the Gilgamesh flood account. I think they were simply aware of a flood narrative in the back from oral traditions that was handed down to the Mesopotamians and the Hebrews. But there's no evidence of literary borrowing from Genesis to the uh, from Genesis to Epic of Gilgamesh. And if you want, see the video I did a year ago uh, on the Epic of Gilgamesh and the flood narrative. What about uh, Tower of Babel? I mean, obviously you have Nimrod who, I mean, that's that's just specifically mentioning Babylon, right? And mm -hmm. Tower of Babel, uh, there's the one tablet. Uh, it's like the Babylonian uh, Tower of Babel or something like that tablet where it has like, you know, some people would say there's parallels of, you know, meeting together and the materials used and uh, one more other thing, but you don't, you're not, yeah. you don't see that very convincing. Well, I mean, Nimrod is not mentioned in the Tower of Babel incident. He's mentioned in Genesis 10. People connect him because of later traditions to it. But Genesis does not connect Nimrod to the Tower of Babel. Um, these are separate incidents. Uh, so, yeah, I think the Tower of Babel is definitely a polemic against Babylonian religions and their ideas. Uh, I definitely think that is what is going on there. But they're not aware of any text. They're attacking the culture generally, as scholars like Gordon Wenham have noted. They're attacking... If they were attacking specific texts, it's been lost to us, but they're just generally attacking the religious ideas of Babylon. You build these ziggurats thinking the gods are going to come down and glorify you. Well, no, they're going to, 
what really is is the real supreme god would come down and he would uh he would find it a mockery he would reject this idea because you have turned the true religion into a mockery by making gods more human-like that's generally what's going on in genesis 11. uh so i don't think that they were aware of any specific text per se uh, I think they were more or less attacking the culture generally. Yeah. So, um, hmm. so, so it sounds like you're, you know, you don't think it like each of these stories, they, they kind of like have some similar themes, but, you know, definitely not copying. And, um, you know, maybe they had a general, you know, cultural idea in, in their mind of like maybe how they wrote back then or what was on their in their minds. Um, I guess for scholars, it's a lot of times it's just the sheer, I guess the coincidence that all of those stories, um, like all those stories together, having similar themes and almost sometimes seeming to maybe like cop copy uh, from the other Babylonian stories, that that's why people are so confident in putting it that Genesis 1 to 11 was written in the Babylonian exile. But you don't find that well, convincing. Well, I'm I'm not against that idea. I, I'm mm. I'm very I'm just not sure about dating issues. I think that's very hard to do based on what we know. Uh, for one thing, we we know that Jeremiah in chapter four he was aware of Genesis one. He is directly quoting it. Uh, it seems also that Hosea may have been aware of the Eden narrative based on some things. The Book of Job may have been aware of it, as Trigve Menninger talks about in his uh, book, the Eden narrative. Uh, so it does seem like there it may have already been in Israel and just known for this time. Uh, if it does date to that time, that doesn't really bother me. But I do think the reason why a lot of that is placed in Babylon is because it says that Abraham came out of Ur. So you have to start the primeval history building up to Abraham. That That's all really a big point of Genesis 1 to 11. It's building up to Abraham. Uh, you have... Adam who fails, then you have Noah that fails, and you finally have Abraham who's this promise is going to come through and build up. But he comes out of Ur, so you have to have some sort of history building up to him in that general region. So it very well could date to the Babylonian exile. I'm not against that idea, but I do think there are some interesting arguments that it could even be older. But again, dating is not a big issue for me. I'm not more, I'm more interested in reliability. I think you could make a good case this uh, could very well date to that time period. But also, uh, it could still be reliable, even if it does date to that time period. So you said dating isn't as important to you, um, but what about you know trustworthiness? What about uh, Genesis one to eleven, or just all of the first five books of the Bible that you find just you know very trustworthy? Well, I think there's a lot of it depends on the time period. Um, Kenneth Kitchen wrote his book on the reliability of the Old Testament, and he goes through sections and points out with a lot of internal evidence in this part of the Pentateuch than this part, and even going back to early stages of Genesis. For one thing, Genesis is aware of uh, the, geogra the geography of Eden. It talks about Eden, these four rivers meeting at this one place. And lo and behold, we now know from satellite data that that seems to fit with what the, uh, what the um, Persian Gulf looked like before it was flooded in, before it uh, was covered up and became the Persian Gulf. You had four rivers that met in one area and went down into the... Uh, Indian Ocean after that. So you have geogra geography fits quite well with the, um, or the Eden narrative geography fits, fits quite well with some reliable accounts of the past. 
Uh, so I've talked a little bit about some reliable correlations we do see in the uh, Genesis account. Uh, so I do think there is some evidence to support its overall reliability. But again, the further back we go in time, the less data we're going to have. So it's always going to be very limited in what we can show with that. Uh, with Tower of Babel incident, the best we can show is correlations. We cannot actually show direct evidence for it as of now. But you can sort of see that I think there's, an, there's enough evidence to suggest at least some sort of reliability account there. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And of course, you have your videos on uh, Moses and the Exodus and why you think that, uh, you know, what I also have a that video. Mm -hmm. I also have a video on Abraham. I have a video on the Tower of Babel and Eden. So I do, and the flood as well. I argue there was a um, one point in the past, the, the entire region in Mesopotamia there did turn into a mega lake for about a year or so based on some interesting finds in that region. So we do have some interesting data that does seem to confirm that there may have been a massive flood in that area. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so now I want to do is I want to essentially, you know, give an argument for the documentary hypothesis, and mm -hmm. then I want to get your response and just see what goes from there. Okay. So you talked about like how the different sources, um, there's different sources, JPD. Um, I'll, I'll talk about why, what the, what the evidence is you know it's not simply just like you know two elohim and yahweh that there's two names and you know mm -hmm. we're just gonna break it up based on that or whatever um it's a little much more in depth of course this is a cumulative case so like you know you're you're gonna you know give you your a thousand reasons why uh what you find the evidence adds up and of course the the person that believes in the document hypothesis is going to do the exact same thing so um it could be a lot a lot more in depth but uh this will be Hopefully pretty quick. Okay, so this is basically from uh, a lot of my notes I've got from Richard Elliott Friedman, who um, written a lot on the topic. Um, so essentially, you know, there's you can break up the 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 first five books of the Bible and in basically into doublets or sometimes even triplets of like stories where it seems like two things are happening at the same time to do the same theme or they basically the exact same things happening and it's like. Okay, that's a weird coincidence and stuff that like the stories of the covenant between god and abraham happens twice naming of isaac happens twice uh two stories with abraham you know claims the king that and claims to a king that is his uh, his wife is really a sister that happens twice and then another time in a, in a different story um so there's a whole bunch of di different ones like that you know 30 cases of them scholars would say and then what it looks like each of these stories even has some contradictions and then they have uh um, some examples are just different names or Moses's father-in-law seems to have different names. Um, and then when we break them up, it's weird because the stories, we break up the doublets. If you, if you break them up between Elohim and Yahweh, then they, they seem to like fit really nicely. Like when you're talking about, um, the names of God fit nicely with only three exceptions out of 2000 and they're like only three of them like aren't, don't fit very well. And then practically all the contradictions disappear and there's specific terms for use for each one. And then the, they, uh, the separation produces nice, very continuous narratives. And then um, the dating fits really nice too. And, you know, with the phrases and the language and the themes of, you know, priestly leadership and it, like, for example, the P source says that only Aaron could be a priest and there's there's no only Aaron or the Aaronic priesthood could sacrifice. And then before that, Aaron, nobody else sacrifices except for in the other sources. And then um, the numbers and the 
the the dates are or the the specific numbering and like groups thinking about like the tabernacle and the Noah's Ark, like the super the weird like grouping of numbers and all that only happens in certain sources. So long story short, um, when you add it all up together and there's much more, it's like, okay, this seems to fit really, really well. But um, Michael, you don't think so. So what do you think about that? Well, it seems to fit really well until you hear the critics. And the documentary hypothesis does have a lot of critics that have argued against it. So let's talk about the flood account a little bit here, because this is supposed to be a triumph for the documentary hypothesis. It's divided into the J and the P account, and it can easily be shown. You, know, you, you, you get all the doublets split up, and there are, you know, you, you divide the flood account from Genesis 6 to 9, take this verse out, take that verse out, you start mixing and matching, and you get the J and the B account, and they're totally coherent. They totally work separate. You remove all the doublets. I'm going to read from Richard Elliott Freeman's book, uh, The Bible with, with Sources Revealed. And I'm just going to read the J account in Genesis 7. Uh, so I'll just read right through it here. And then I will stop at some point to comment on it. So, and Yahweh said to Noah, come you and all your household into the ark, for I've seen that you as virtuous in front of me in this generation. Of all the pure animals take seven pairs, man and his woman, and of the animals that are not pure, two men and his woman. Also of the birds of the sky, seven pairs, male and female, to keep seed alive on the face of the earth, because in seven days I'll reign on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I'll wipe out all the substance I've made from the face of the earth. Noah did according to all the Yahweh had commanded him. And Noah had his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him came to the ark from before the waters of the flood. And seven days later, the waters of the flood were on the earth, and there was rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And Yahweh closed it for him. And the flood was on the earth for 40 days, and the waters multiplied and raised the ark, and it was lifted from the earth. Now, if, if you if you caught that, I was just reading the J account. Uh, but if you notice, when I jumped from what is in Genesis, from verse 12 to verse 17, there was a doublet. Let me repeat that. I'll read verse 12 and 17, because these are a sign of the J account. And there was rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and Yahweh closed it for him, and the flood was on the earth for 40 days. You have another doublet there, so it's a double standard, is what scholars like Gordon Wenham and Joshua Berman have pointed out. When you divide up the sources in the J account, you get a doublet in there. I thought the point was to avoid doublets. You also lack something in the J account. You lack God commanding Noah to build the ark. Uh, the reader, if you just have the J account, may wonder, uh, where, when was Noah, what is Noah going into? There's no command in the J account to build the ark. Uh, there's also no command for Noah to even leave the ark in the J account, uh, although you could suggest it's implied, but it is in the P account, for example. So why would it not be in the J account based on that same logic? We also have another problem here that uh, scholars like you know, this book have pointed out. So I mentioned before, there's that whole issue, but Joshua Berman goes through and he points out that, um, Joshua Berman and Gordon Wenham both go through and they point out that when you take the flood account as is, it aligns quite well with the same uh, structure we see in the Gilgamesh account. So in both, the, in the combined account, as we have the flood account now, and in the Gilgamesh epic, it starts with a divine decision to destroy mankind. Then, followed by a warning to the flood hero, divine command to build the ark. Hero complies with the command. Command to board the ark. Hero boards the ark with family and animals. Closes the door. Description of flood. Description of uh, destruction of life. End of rain. Ark grounding on a mountain. Hero opens window. Uh, releasing of the dove and the raven. Hero exit the ark. Hero offers sacrifices. Divinity smells the sacrifices. Divinity blesses the hero. So Gary Rensberg says, 
We're supposed to believe that two separate authors wrote two separate accounts of Noah and the flood, and neither of them included all the elements found in the Gilgamesh epic, but that when they were interwoven by a redactor, voila, the story paralleled the Gilgamesh flood story point by point. So generally what they're saying is, is that somehow magically when you combine it, it matches already a, a, a comparative flood account in the ancient Near East. Now, again, I don't think they were copying the Gilgamesh epic. Again, I argue they're they descending from the same oral traditions, but it seems far more likely the literary unity of the account itself uh, fits with the culture already. We don't need to divide this up into two different sources. We also see uh, documentary hypothesis proponents, source critics, sort of explaining away inconsistencies to a redactor. So verse 7-6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood was, water was on the earth. Well, that's explained by a redactor because it doesn't really sound like J, according to them. Same with the ending of Genesis 9. And Noah lived after the flood 300 years and 50 years, and all of Noah's days were 900 years and 50 years, and then he died. That's also attributed to a redactor because it doesn't match necessarily the J account. So generally, we see that splitting them up into two separate accounts does not get rid of doublets. It actually creates a doublet at one point. Uh, inconsistencies are explained away by a redactor. Uh, we also see that um, you get an incomplete J account. Uh, we lack something like building of the Ark and Noah exiting the Ark. We also see it parallels the Gilgamesh epic in its form. They'll, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, like you need to split up when God released the raven and when God and when Noah released the dove, Noah released the dove and raven. Those need to be split in different things. But in the Gilgamesh epic, uh, Utnapishtim releases two types of birds. You say you got to release, you got to split up the accounts based on where the water comes from. One comes from the fountains of the deep bursting open. One comes from the rain. But in the Gilgamesh epic, it talks about the, it raining and the dikes breaking open. So you have two sources of water there too. So generally, it, I, could, I think Gordon Wenham is correct. The flood account fits already in the ancient Eastern context. It doesn't make sense to divide it up into two different sources. Sure, you can make a pretty good case that it could be split up into two sources, but that's just an hypothesis. And it comes with its own problems. It seems far more likely, given what we can see in the account, it just simply is an ancient Near Eastern uh, flood account that has been handed down to the Hebrews. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so um, just for clarity here, when you say that, you know, they, you know, they, they, they split the J and E source, right? Um, in, the, in the flood narrative, they, they split the two, and you're saying that when they're split, they don't really actually fit, like, as far as th their own individual story. Like, it doesn't really may make sense or were you saying that which of course like if there's an editor why can't you know we'll just say that they're edited and stuff was taken out but mm -hmm. are you saying that um that the the original editor or writer wouldn't have done that like that doesn't make sense and that doesn't really fit with the hypothesis is that what you're saying here or tell me well i'm saying that when we try to say that these were two sources combined it's not as neat as they say it is the the j the j version is incomplete it has doublets in it. The P account is uh, looks a lot better. Um, it has more in it, uh, but the J account does not add up. And so a lot, a lot of source critics will say, well, he just left some sources out of the J. You know, he just left some verses out from J. Okay, well then, if he did that, uh, what makes you think that he actually preserved the sources so well? He could have changed as much as he wanted then. We're, we're being told by source critics that he had to preserve both accounts, but then he left out verses here and there, and he also added some things in here and there, as I mentioned, uh, like, for example, 
uh, Genesis 7, 6, for example. Okay, but it, it's, it's getting a little more ad hoc. We're, we're multiplying assumptions beyond necessity to save the hypothesis instead of letting the evidence speak for itself. Uh, if there were, two ink, there were two complete sources preserved in the text, that's what we should find, and we don't actually. There was an incomplete J one. There are redactor additions. There's allegedly verses he left out of the J account. Uh, so it's not as clear cut as proponents make it out to be. Uh, so that's generally what I'm saying here. I'm saying it's not as neat as they say it is when they say there are two flood accounts. And again, why is it that when we combine them, they match the Gilgamesh structure so well? Uh, it seems weird that you have two separate flood accounts that don't match Gilgamesh. And then when you combine them, they do match. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay. And um, so a lot of one complaint um, for people that don't like the documentary hypothesis is that it's circular reasoning. Um, would you say that it is? And could you explain like how that is? If so? Well, it tends to be, they tend to assume, I don't know if I would call it that. Maybe that's the right. I would need to know how that's, what they're, how they're phrasing it. I would say they, they, they always are positing extra assumptions to save the hypothesis. So anytime there's a problem, you just posit a redactor to explain away the problem. That, that just tends to happen. Hey, we found some P language in J. Oh, well, our redactor added that in. Hey, we found some E language in J. Oh, our redactor added that in. He, he was, you know, uh, Joe Baden talks about it in his, in, in his book. He mentions that there's times this happens. But I mean, if you can always pause a redactor to, to deal with the difficulties, uh, you made your hypothesis unfalsifiable because there's no way to actually test it against the data because you can always posit this, this super intelligent redactor who put something in there that you can always explain away. Uh, and so we see this, if you go through Richard Elliott Freeman's book, you'll see a lot of times there's just like this redactor line that's been added in here or this redactor line that's been added in here. Like he had to just sort of put these line, these like phrases in here, like Genesis 12, uh, four it says he had to add the, the phrase from harem or in harem because that was originally not in the P account. Or, you know, as I mentioned before with the flood account, uh, he had to add in these other lines as well to the J account because it wasn't complete as it was or, you know, or he had his own reasons, I guess. So that's, that's my general view is that it just seems ad hoc. So like, for example, and the, the other problem, and there I'll mention two other problems after the documentary hypothesis. One is that it, as Joshua Berman says, I'll just quote him. He says, source critical conclusions are to be determined exclusively, exclusively from the data within the text itself. No outside materials can make a claim to inform that discussion. Generally, what he means is we're not looking at the doc, we're not looking at the Pentateuch comparing it to other ancient documents. We're not looking at it, comparing it to the Kadesh inscription or Homer's epics or texts from the surrounding cultures. We just are saying, you know, we're going to, a lot of these books that are for the documentary hypothesis tend to just focus internally on the Pentateuch and not compare it to the wider ancient culture. So I generally see that is deficient because when you start reading a lot of the critics, they compare the Pentateuch to a lot of other ancient texts and show, look, there's doublets here. There's repetitions here. There's multiple names for a deity here. There's multiple names for a person here. I remember Kenneth Kitchen talking about like the Renepta stele. It has two names for Egypt in that and five names for Memphis in that stele. So we see this kind of, we see a lot of the uh, same literary devices in the Pentateuch and other ancient texts. That tends to be a problem uh, for the documentary hypothesis because it could function as an original text with these features without it being without without it portraying the idea that it's a combination of multiple sources 
Now, the biggest problem I think with the documentary hypothesis is raised by David Carr in his book, The Formation of the Hebrew Bible, as well as uh, Yuha Pakala, uh, Raymond Pearson as well. But generally, it is the idea that when we study ancient texts, they did not preserve their sources in the text. They did not. We cannot reconstruct uh, the book of Jasher from what we find in Joshua. We cannot re reconstruct the book of the wars of Yahweh from what we find in the book of Numbers. Ancient authors did use sources, but they didn't preserve their sources exactly in the text for us to find later. And I think more evidence that scholars like David Carr has put forward to show this, that you're not going to find neat, well-structured sources in something like the Pentateuch. Sure, they definitely did use sources. I'm not denying that. But it's likely that they're using the sources in a way that would not really stitch them together perfectly for us to find centuries later. Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned uh, Homer, the Epic of Gilgamesh, other writings, and now uh, seems like documentary hypothesis uh, proponents aren't comparing it with other texts outside of the Bible. And well, well, let me let me yeah. let me clarify. They they have okay. done a little bit. There is a great book by Jeffrey Ta, who's an editor who's at Empirical Models for Biblical Criticism, where he does show that there are times when texts were combined, it, uh, combined to form more. You know, there were there were texts authors would take sources and combine them to form other texts. So they have done a little bit of this. Uh, but generally, a lot of times when you see people arguing for the documentary hypothesis, they tend to argue mainly from internal uh, arguments from the Pentateuch. There's uh, inconsistency here, so we have to divide it between sources. Well, I mean, there can be there are inconsistencies in the Kadesh inscriptions or in other ancient works, uh, like Homer's epics. And we don't posit different sources there. So that's generally the argument I'm giving. They have offered some models. They've been criticized because there's another book challenging that book uh, written by um, Raymond Pearson and drawing from a bunch of scholars called Empirical Models Challenging Biblical Criticism. So they directly challenged T. Gay's book on that. But they have offered some. It just doesn't seem to be the main argument. And just for the audience sake, could you give us a couple or could you give, give us an example of the inconsistency that's in the Kadesh inscription and maybe something yeah. about that, Homer? Let's, let's talk about the Kadesh inscription because Joshua Berman covers this extensively in his book, Inconsistencies in the Torah. Uh, so I highly recommend that because he covers this in chapter one. But if you go through the Kadesh inscription, it's actually two accounts of Ramesses' battle with the Hittites over Kadesh. One is called the poem and one is called the bulletin. Now, the poem is a much longer form, but there are, there are differences in them. So, for example, in the poem, it gives credit to a moon. It says the role of a moon in helping the fit. The bulletin doesn't mention a moon. It, it attributes all the valor to Ram, Ramesses himself. The poem reports the Egyptians were on march, suddenly ambushed by the Hittites. Now the bulletin is much shorter, and it records this long scene where the Egyptians captured two Hittite spies who revealed the plan of the ambush. There's no mention of this longer episode in the poem. Uh, the bulletin records one battle scene, whereas the poem records three battle scenes that unfolded. Uh, both accounts like six with 16 nations to, that joined the, the Hittite coalition, but 14 are only common to both. Like, for example, the bulletin mentions Elish and Aleppo, which are not in the poem. And there are two missing in the bulletin that are in the poem. Uh, the bulletin reports the Hittites surprised Ramesses and surrounded him and his men. On the other hand, the poem reports the Hittites attacked a pre-division group. Then scouts reported this to Ramesses, who was north of the Kadesh. Berman says, some four-fifths of the poem is verse while only about a quarter of the bulletin is verse. The poem routinely alternates between first-person and third-person narration, 
while narration of the bulletin is nearly entirely reported in third person. The bulletin refers to the Hittite king and the Hittites generally as the fallen ones of Hatti. In nearly every reference to the Hittites, some 13 times total. Of the 11 references to the Hittites by name in the poem, the appellation appears only twice. So you have general differences in style, names, language, a lot of differences here. So Berman says, look, these were commissioned by, at the same time, by one author, put side by side in inscriptions, and there's inconsistencies. It's, well, that just goes to show you that when you study the ancient culture, there are inconsistencies or different styles can exist within a text and be the product of one single author. So that's very interesting. Do you think that has any um, benefit when we're studying the Bible, looking at contradictions, or do you think that's just a different context? No, I think it does because Berman also has a really interesting chapter on the differences in Deuteronomy versus what you see in the rest of the Pentateuch. And he compares it to Hittite treaties with the city of Ugarit. Uh, the city of Ugarit renewed its treaties at some point, and then there were differences in the treaty about talking about the past. Uh, things in the newer treaties uh, have different motivations for why things happened. So if you compare the treaties, there are contradictions for why these treaties are being written between the Hittites and Ugarit. Uh, and Berman points out this is a literary device. You take history and you repurpose it for the needs of the time. Like that's the in Deuteronomy parallels Hittite treaties very closely in terms of structure. Uh, and they're doing the same Hittite practice. The history has been modified in Deuteronomy to meet the needs of the time when Moses is giving the speech to the Israelites just before they're in enter Canaan. Same sort of concept there. So there are inconsistencies between Deuteronomy and the rest of the Pentateuch, like stories you see in numbers. But that fits with the cultural context, surprisingly. It fits with the same Hittite treaties or Hittite treaties we see from the same time period, that there are inconsistencies from time period to time period when the treaties are renewed, because now they need the history to be repurposed to say something else in this new time. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So kind of moving on just a little bit. Um, so, you know, obviously you're Christian. Um, you don't believe in the documentary hypothesis. Um, <laughs> but question for you, you know, if you felt like the, the evidence was good enough, like, would you feel comfortable accepting it? Like, obviously, it's going to, a lot of people think that it's going to hurt the authority of scripture. So uh, it can in some ways, for sure, because now you have two flood accounts, you have two contradictory accounts of Joseph being sold into slavery. So you have issues like that. Um, I think Richard Elliott Freeman's book, Who Wrote the Bible, makes a pretty good case. Uh, that I don't think it would necessarily be a huge problem because he talks about how the authors would have had sources they would have used. It could have been kept at Shiloh. They would have been going back. And so very well, it could have been reliable accounts. You could argue that maybe they were divinely inspired to write what they did and the redactor was divinely inspired to combine them in the way to accurately reflect history. Like, you know, the, the original authors only had one aspect and so they had to be combined to reflect the real history. It's possible. It seems a little ad hoc in my view, but I don't think it's necessarily... A problem for Christianity or Judaism. I think you could still hold to this view and still uh, be okay with it. It just would make it maybe a little bit more ad hoc, I would say. Uh, it would also strengthen some aspects of the Hebrew Bible in some ways, because instead of having one account of the Exodus, you now have multiple accounts of the Exodus. So it would actually make, make the Exodus multiply attested. So in some ways, it would actually help uh, Christian or, or Jewish theism. It wouldn't actually be a huge problem in that regards. 
because you'd have multiple sources attesting to the history of Israel. But generally, I think there's just too many problems with it uh, to really hold to it. I, I agree with David Carr and Jupa Packel of it. Ancient authors did not preserve their sources intact for source critics later to find. Uh, they just simply didn't. They would, uh, and they give numerous examples of this. For, so it's very hard to argue that the sources would have been preserved in the way source critics assume they are. So um, when you talk about Job, when you talk about Daniel, a lot of scholars would say that they were written to make it look like it was older than it was. Um, uh, I just had a scholar on to talk about that recently. Um, but you wouldn't say that the, the first five books of the Bible here are, are made to look like that at all, do you? No, but I do think the language is definitely updated over time. I mean, just like, you know, we people are reading the King James today because it uses a lot of older English. People prefer ESV, New King James, that kind of thing because it's easier to read. It's either easier to digest. Same kind of thing is going to happen with the Hebrew language. It's going to be updated over time. Language is going to be updated over time. So I don't, and David Carr makes a pretty good argument in his book that it's really hard to date based on language because you can find Aramaic cognates in very early things like Judges 5. Uh, you can find late, you can find very um, early words in texts that are dated late. So like Kings, for example. Uh, Raymond of Person in his chapter in Empirical Models Challenging Biblical Criticism notes that some of the language in Kings that has been argued to be late is actually older than what we originally thought. It's very hard to argue from language. I'm not, and again, I'm not really, I'm not really sure we can always date these texts like we think we can, but I think we can show they're at least reliable regardless of when they date to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would you say that you're a big fan of using the, the Egyptian loan words that are in Genesis to date it at all? Do you think that's good evidence for it? Oh, absolutely. That's incredibly good evidence, especially when you do what Benjamin Noonan did when it comes to this, showing how you don't have the same amount of loan words in something like Edomite or Moabite or even Ugaritic. Um, Hebrew really stands out as having this abundance of Egyptian loan words. And these are Egyptian loan words that come from a time of the late Bronze Age. So they could only enter the, the uh, language of the Hebrew the uh, Sem Semites that became the Israelites very early on. And Burma does a really good job showing this. And so I do think that can definitely help in dating some of these things. Now, again, that doesn't mean the texts were necessarily written that early. It, it could have been an oral traditions that were handed down and then eventually uh, written down. And when they were written down, they would have preserved a lot of those Egyptian loan words that came from the earlier oral traditions. That is fine as well. Do you take the view that... Um... So if Moses did write uh, the, you know, a big part of the Torah, would you say that it was definitely written in Hebrew or like, do we know that with any confidence? So it would have to be some sort of early like proto-Canaanite language, proto-Sinatic sometimes it's called. Uh, it would, if it, I want to know if scholars would classify that as Hebrew. Because uh, I don't think we the, what we classify as Hebrew shows up till the Iron Age, but it would have been an earlier. And we know there was there was written alphabetic languages prior to Hebrew. The Hebrew likely came from, so it's very likely they could have used some sort of just earlier form of uh, their language that slowly evolved into what we call Hebrew. Yeah, I mean, even Answers in Genesis organizations like that, super conservative organizations, they're perfectly fine with saying that you know the the whole, whole entire Torah didn't have an entire just one author, Moses, like it, it could have had a, a multiple, you know, or editors along the lines. Um, so uh, 
so that sounds like if it's written like that and you know language changes that sounds like you know there had to have been a big overhaul of essentially editing to update the language would is that, was that is that a correct way to say it uh, again absolutely it, it this definitely happened it, it was definitely updated over time it's definitely supplemented over time you compare it to the book of jeremiah if you look at jeremiah in the septuagint versus the hebrew bible jeremiah in the masoretic is one seventh longer so it's been updated with commentary for the jews in exile whereas the septuagint has the older version that doesn't have the same commentary added in that's probably the same thing happened with the Pentateuch because it was updated with more commentary over time. Things may have been modified or changed to fit with changes in language. This is just the way texts evolved over time. Uh, so, so we see that kind of thing happening. Um, totally okay with that, that, that. That's expected to happen. Uh, not a big deal. And if God could have been inspiring the original text, he very well could have been inspiring the supplements that were added in as well or the uh, uh, scribes that were supplementing the text. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so um, kind of buck on the inerrancy topic. So you you mentioned like contradictions might be an issue if you take the documentary hypothesis view. Would you say that if the documentary hypothesis view is true, that that we could still say that it is inspired and inerrant? Like, is that is that even possible? I think you could, but, but again, you'd have to argue that there's some sort of divine providence happening that the original sources were wrong and that's why god had the redactor combine them to make them what they are now it seems a little bit ad hoc but again because i don't hold the documentary pause i don't have to worry about that so <laughs> okay um and in regards to it being ad hoc it basically just like lowers the probability so i guess um a lot of people find that an issue because uh you know it if you know if the beginning books of the bible or you know not trustworthy like you know might destroy your faith because you know if one part of the bible is wrong the whole thing is wrong that kind of idea but you you would take the view that like you know that the our you know our, our main argument is based like for christianity is based on the new testament and the, the resurrection so like as long as the resurrection outweighs you know whatever evidence you have for untrustworthiness you know doesn't really matter in the long run right is that is that I mean, a good way to put it i mean if jesus rose from the dead i'm not going to worry about you know an alleged contradiction between kings and chronicles i mean like uh we we have evidence that a guy rose from the dead that is that enough uh and again i'm not really worried too much about that kind of idea of inerrancy because it doesn't really that doesn't really strengthen my faith in any way i guess you could say I'm more interested in if the accounts are reliable, if they fit with the cultural context. Uh, and I think there's plenty of evidence for that. So in preparation for this, I've, I've actually watched a, a good amount of, you know, Kip Davis's, you know, responses to your your uh, video with Capturing Christianity, real, real fun video. Um, mm -hmm. Would you say that uh, you've changed your mind since then? Or, or um, would you say you've updated your views? Would you say that you've, you know, maybe made bad arguments in the past, but changed it now or based on any criticism you've received? Oh yeah, of course. I, I put that to presentation together really quickly and was a little rough on it. I was just trying to help Cameron out with something. Uh, but yeah, I'm still definitely not convinced of the documentary hypothesis. The more I look into it, the more I see more and more problems with it. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people, the proponents of it don't deal with the criticisms like they should. 
I, I think there there are way too many criticisms. It doesn't fit with the cultural context. Doesn't fit with how ancient texts were written. Uh, I, I don't know what else to say with regards to it. I still think that there was a lot of good evidence to date, to date the Pentateuch quite old. It's at least reliable. Uh, and I generally do not think the documentary process works, I guess, if that's what you're asking. All right. That's all I got for you, Michael. Um, obviously, everyone, make sure you go check out his channel. Um, uh, he's doing all kinds of good videos um, and, you know, more on the topic for his channel. Um, Anything else you'd like to share besides your channel? I'm growing on TikTok now, so you can follow me on there. I'm doing a lot of stuff on there. I'm almost at 10,000 followers, so that's exciting. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's some legit progress. Um, yeah, uh, once a day. That's uh, super consistent. Nice. Um, but anyways, appreciate you coming on here, Michael. Um, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and I would hope a lot of people got a, got a lot out of this. Thank you. Yeah.